Good morning, everyone. This is Father Nate, a missionary priest in Italy. And thanks for joining us today, January 13th, on No Greater Delight, our podcast on Marian feasts and Marian meditations. Once again today, we have a great number of feasts. So we'll start off in Spain with Nuestra Señora de la Cabeza in Motril, Granada, Andalusia, in Spain. So Nuestra Señora de la Cabeza is literally Our Lady of the Head, right? So what are we celebrating here? Well, in the 1500s, soldiers found a hundred-year-old statue of the Virgin and Child in Corinth, Greece. That's what they did is they took it with them out to sea. A storm brought them to port near Motril in southern Spain. Every time they tried to leave, a new storm came up. So deciding that this meant that the Virgin didn't want to leave the place, they built her a chapel on the land, right? On the headland, I guess that's the piece that comes out. So, in the 1600s, a Baroque church was built for Our Lady of the Head. In the 1800s, when earthquakes nearly destroyed Motril, the people vowed to honor her with an annual procession if she would save them. This vow is fulfilled every January 13th. During the Spanish Civil War, the sanctuary was unfortunately destroyed, but it's since been rebuilt. Um, the statue's gold hair and mantle and white robe with golden patterns are usually hidden under reached embro- richly embroidered vestments. And interestingly enough, elephant tusks are mounted in silver and they form a crescent moon at her feet. This image was canonically crowned in 2003. Then we jump up to Belgium in uh, Notre Dame, Namur, in Namur, Wallonia, Belgium. The church there was consecrated on, in 1753 on this day, January 13th. Next, we have a very interesting devotion. It's Panna Maria Pomichne Krishtanu. Yelchikov, Yashin, Isti nad Lavem in the Czech Republic, in Filipov village. That all is to say, Virgin Mary, help of Christians. We celebrate an apparition and a healing in 1866. So what happened? Well, Madalena Kade, who was an orphan, right, and she had um, been like uh, bedridden since the age of 12 because she had many, many illnesses, was actually cured by the Blessed Virgin Mary following an apparition. Actually, the local bishop has like recognized the healing and the supernatural character of the apparition. So it's uh, approved at least by the local bishop, right? So Philipsdorf, which is the uh, Philippov village, if you will, is a village. Um, yeah, it was in Bohemia, but I think now it is actually the Czech Republic, right? So what happened? Um, Madalena Kade, she was. Uh, she was 31. She was born in that little village. And as an orphan, she lived with uh, her brother Giuseppe, who was 34, with his wife, uh, Cecilia, and their five kids, right? So it was January 13th of 1866 that Mary appeared to Maddalena Cade. She had been a sower, um, but for like we said, for 12 years, she had been very, very sick, right? So much so that they really thought that she was at the end of her life and she had already received the last rites. She was a timid woman, but very devout to Our Lady, but also not stupid. She was very practical, right? So um, she was almost like, yeah, they said nailed to her bed um, for like over a month with wounds all over her body like it was leprosy. Ugh. January 13th, 1866, at two at night, uh, Madalena was in bed and she couldn't even speak because of how weak she was. A dear friend of hers, Veronica Kinderman, was there keeping an eye on her. So the sick woman was like sitting there just, you know, contemplating an image of uh, our sorrowful mother, which was on the wall in front of the bed. At four o'clock, 
Madalena suddenly saw a brilliant light which enlightened the room. And at the center of this light, there was always something even brighter. And she saw a woman there. She woke up her friend. Uh, it says when a gomitata, like she hit her with her, her elbow and said, hey, look at that. Look at that beauty. Look at that beauty. Interesting enough, Veronica didn't see anything. She only saw the light of the lamp, right? Madalena was the only one privileged to see Our Lady, right? Um, and so um, she told her friend, like, hey, get on your knees because the Blessed Virgin is there. She couldn't stand the light, right? So she actually, like, covered her face with her hands and cried. Um, after a little bit, her friend, like, like, uncovered her. Magdalene could now see without any difficulty, right? They recited the first two verses of the Magnificat, and then Our Lady moved her lips and silently told her, uh, my daughter, from now on, you are healed, right? And sure enough, she was healed. Likewise, uh, we're going to jump down to Peru, uh, Vergenes de la Providencia in Otusco, in La Libertad, Peru. On this day in 1867, images were found in the broken rock. In 1571, on this day, the little office of the Blessed Virgin was revised by Pope Pius V. Um, there's a celebration of Our Wounded Lady in Cambrai, France. Couldn't find more information about that. It was in 1547 that the Council of Trent declared that Mary is free from sin. And last, but certainly not least, on this jam-packed day, it's the celebration of Our Lady of Victory in Prague. And this took place in 1620. The church was named in, um, in honor of the Austrian Emperor Ferdinand II's victory over a Protestant army near Prague. If you recall, that church, Our Lady of Victory, is famous for holding the Holy Infant of Prague statue. That's where it's held. And that's what we're celebrating today, January 13th. Today, we'll continue with our meditations on Mary, our Mother, taken from the writings of St. John Henry Newman. Today, we continue with a selection from the letter to Dr. Pousset. And this in section is entitled Iniquity, uh, Antiquity of the Madonna, right? So again, we're in the section talking about Mary's great dignity. If you recall yesterday, because today's passage is a conclusion, a continuation from yesterday. Yesterday, uh, Newman was discussing the, the importance of Mary and her role in the scriptures. And that we should probably honor her, right? Because of her great dignity and yeah, that sometimes people just kind of pass over her. They don't give Mary the importance she needs. Well, if we really looked and found her role in Scripture, we would honor her accordingly. And so, John Henry Newman says, I find this doctrine in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. And he says, immediately, people are going to raise two claims. The first is that seeing the woman of the apocalypse as Mary is poorly supported by the church fathers. And to that, he replied yesterday, saying, well, that's because the church fathers didn't pull out things from the scripture unless they needed to. Unless there was a controversy and the gospel passages would help, they weren't concerned with giving an explanation of it. And second, he says, in ascribing such a picture of the Madonna to the apostolic age, I am committing an anachronism, meaning it's something that's out of date or out of time, right? I'm looking back and reading into it something that wasn't there at the time. And it's this second point that he considers today. So let's see what he has to say about the iniquity, antiquity of the Madonna. He says, as to the question of anachronism in interpreting the Madonna in the Virgin of the Apocalypse, so far from allowing it, I consider that it is built upon a mere imaginary fact, and that the truth of the matter lies in a very contrary direction. In other words, he's saying, this is not a modern idea, this is a very old idea. He said, 
the virgin and child is not a mere modern idea. On the contrary, it is represented again and again, as every visitor to Rome is aware, in the paintings of the catacombs. Mary is there drawn with a divine infant in her lap, she with hands extended in prayer, he with his hand in the attitude of blessing. No representation can more forcibly convey the doctrine of the high dignity of the mother, and I will add, of her influence with her son. Why should the memory of his time of subjection be so dear to Christians and so carefully preserved? The only question to be determined is the precise date of these remarkable monuments of the first age of Christianity. That they belong to the centuries of what Anglicans call the undivided church is certain. But lately investigations have been pursued, which place some of them at an earlier date than anyone anticipated as possible. In the catacombs we have various representations of the virgin and child. The latest of these belong to the early part of the 4th century, but the earliest may be from the very age of the apostles. This conclusion is reached from the style and the skill of its composition, and from the history, locality, and existing inscriptions of the subterranean in which it is found. However, we do not go so far as to insist upon so early a date. Yet the utmost concession could be to refer the painting to the area of the first Antonine emperors, that is, to a date within half a century of the death of St. John. I consider, then, that as you would use them in controversy with Protestants, and fairly, the traditional doctrine of the Church in early times as an explanation of the particular passage of Scripture, or at least as a suggestion, or as a defense, of the sense which you may wish to put upon it, quite apart from the question whether your interpretation itself is directly traditional. So it is lawful for me, though I have not positive words of the fathers on my side, to shelter my own interpretation of the Apostle's vision in the Apocalypse under the fact of the extant pictures of mother and child in the Roman catacombs. Again, there is another principle of scriptural interpretation, which we should well hold as well as the Protestants. Namely, when we speak of a doctrine being contained in scripture, we do not necessarily mean that it is contained there in direct categorical terms, but that there is no satisfactory way of accounting for the language and expressions of the sacred writers concerning the subject matter in question, except to suppose that they held concerning it the opinion which we hold, that, we would not, that they would not have spoken as they spoke unless they held it. For I myself have ever felt the truth of this principle as regards the scripture proof of the Holy Trinity. I should not have found out that the doctrine of the sacred text without previous traditional teaching. But when it, when, once it is suggested from without, it commends itself as one of the true interpretation from its oppositeness, because no other view of doctrine, which can be ascribed to the inspired writers, so happily solves the obscurities and seeming inconsistencies of their teaching.